0: There are still people on social media who say, you know, we should just shut up and suck it up, we can get through the winter, even if it's a bit colder. But it it won't be a bit colder, it might end up being a lot colder. And there might be energy rationing, which is the worst case scenario, I think. But it will be a brutal wake-up call for a lot of people.
1: Welcome to the Political Economy Project with the goal of creating universal prosperity for today and future generations. My name is Evan Pap and I'm the executive producer of Empathy Media Lab, which publishes content on labor, political economy, art and culture, and we're a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Today, I'm speaking with Irina Slav, who writes about energy, mining and geopolitics for oilprice.com, with occasional gigs for Seeking Alpha and other news outlets. She also has one of the best Substack columns writing on energy. And today we will be discussing her essay titled Life with Energy Scarcity 101. Irina, thanks so much for your time.
0: Thanks for having me. and great to be here.
1: So... Could we begin by you briefly introducing yourself and how you got interested in energy?
0: Well, I I started writing about the energy policies uh, of Russia and the former Soviet Union more than 10 years ago at an information company. And then I went freelance and it sort of just happened. (laughs) An editor from Oil Price found me on a freelancing platform, and that's where I really, really started delving deeper into all the energy issues and the geopolitics connected with energy and all that.
1: So why did you want to write this essay, Life with Energy Scarcity 101?
0: Well, because as we we can see, as we have seen in the past few months, it's almost a year now, actually, energy is becoming scarce in Europe, at least. And now we have, you know, a really, really harsh situation after the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. And we have calls for reduced consumption of energy, of gas, but it's actually a reduced consumption of energy. So, uh, you know, countries can call, governments can call. So we might have to learn those those who have never experienced energy scarcity in their lives uh, might have to, to quickly learn to live with it and blackouts are not out of the question. Um, I, I wrote this life of energy scarcity a while ago. I did draw on, on the experience of people from Eastern Europe who actually had to live with scarcity for years and decades, especially in Romania. So these people know what this is all about. People in Western Europe don't seem to be aware of it, but they are becoming quickly aware of it. There are still people on social media who say, you know, we should just shut up and suck it up we can get through the winter even if it's a bit colder. But it, it won't be a bit colder. It might end up being a lot colder and there might be energy rationing, which is the worst case scenario, I think but it will be a brutal uh, wake-up call for a lot
1: of people. Some of my first experiences with the blackouts, energy rationing, and then just no access to electricity was as a Peace Corps volunteer in Southern Africa in Zambia. Right. and Zambia. Uh, and even in the cities, you would have blackouts constantly and brownouts. And, and then in the rural areas, there was no electricity. And it it just kind of changes your whole schedule to revolve around the electricity cycle. And you, you discuss this a little bit about during the mid 1980s blackout in Bulgaria and, and the recollection of these three hours on and three hours off. Could you talk about yeah. that experience?
0: Well, I was really little at the time, so my, my memories are not all that clear. But as I wrote in that in that article, I remember my mother trying to fit in everything that requires electricity. Within this time, and actually people's memories are, are differ, or rather the blackout durations in different towns differ. Some had four hours on, one hour off, two hours off, two hours on. It, it, it's really a bit confusing, but as you said, you need to reorganize your whole life uh, around you know electricity supply. And it's not exactly a stress-free thing. I remember, for example, in the evening when there was no power, we would sit and, you know, have dinner with candlelight. But my husband has much worse memories from his childhood in Romania. He had to actually actually study and do his homework in candlelight. It's very romantic for dinner. It's not very romantic for doing homework. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's, not, it's not exactly an exciting experience, I'd say. No,
1: no, no. And you also focus a lot of your work on what are the causes behind this. And there, there are a multitude of causes, but what are some of the reasons why there is this energy scarcity? And yeah, I want to just kind of pick this apart a little bit.
0: Right, well, I think we we rushed into the energy transition when I say we I mean Europe, the United States to to a bit lesser extent, because of all the oil and gas you produce locally. But Europe really, really doubled down on this transition, and it never our governments never stopped to think if they're not actually rushing into it. Something I'd like to remind everyone who would listen is that the, the problems with energy supply to Europe did not begin in February with the Russian invasion. They began last year. They probably began much, much further in the past, but the, the signs began to emerge last year in the UK and in Europe when gas prices began to rise because, among other things, low wind speeds. As you say, there are many causes I have been known to kind of pick on renewables, not because I am against renewables as such, I mean, wind and solar, but because I don't think they are being deployed rationally and optimally. It's like this haste to build as much wind and solar capacity as we can in the shortest possible period. Without thinking of everything that comes with it, for example, a lot of uh, wind and solar needs to be curtailed when there's a lot of wind and solar, but not so much demand, uh, and then there is no solar at night or in the evenings when demand jumps. So there's this discrepancy between supply of renewable power and demand. It's the grid, any grid is a very finely tuned instrument. and I think most of us are really, really ignorant about it, really unaware of just how finely tuned it is and how important it is to have reliable sources of energy. Yes, oil and gas, blue and coal too, but now Germany is restarting coal plants. Yeah. Germany, the greenest of the green, you know, countries in Europe, they're restarting coal plants because they're being forced into it because of their own transition ambitions and the way they went about it.
1: Yeah. And I, I just read that they're continuing this back and forth conversation. There was this complete policy that went into effect about shutting nuclear power plants down. And then they said, well, we're, we may restart some of them. And now they're saying, well, we're not going to restart some of them, but we're opening up these coal plants. And it's just this fetish on wind and solar on, at least for the environmental sector. On the, on the other side, though, you do have this natural gas cartel and the natural gas cartel of trying to get to a international commodity pricing that I'm kind of curious about because it I call it cartel in a sense that they're the technology of actual little, the transportation, liquefied natural gas, the terminals, there's very few countries that have that technology. Yeah. Meanwhile, a lot of countries have learned the technology of coal operation of hydro, and even with the proliferation of nuclear, it's almost like I'm seeing that by one side of the that the environmentalists of wind and solar are shutting down coal, hydro, nuclear. And so everyone's going to be on natural gas, which is going to be required to back up wind and solar. And as this moves into an international commodity pricing, spot pricing, the Henry Hub and things like that, then this the group that can control the technology of natural gas will be in a great place of continuing a a very strong position of of controlling the the world global energy supply now this is mostly in the west because you know we see china has committed to a 450 billion dollar build out of 150 nuclear reactors russia is very strong positioned in its energy supplies but i i just want to kind of Throw that conspiracy theory at you and see what you had to say.
0: Well, I don't know. There was there was talk a while ago that Russia, Iran and other large gas producers in the East rather than the West could, you know, could set up a group that's very similar to OPEC and uh, uh, work towards uh, international pricing. This hasn't happened now. But the fact is that some of the largest oil producers in the world are also the largest gas producers in the world, and uh, most of these countries in the east, such as Russia and and Iran, do not have these ambitious transition goals that the U.S. and Canada, two of the largest gas producers in the world, have. And these ambitions would eventually lead. In. If, you know, the work continues, these ambitions would probably lead to, you know, pressure on the gas industries in the countries in the U.S. and Canada to reduce gas productions. And they will. this will not be good for anyone. But I, I, I don't know. I don't think a, a gas cartel is happening unless, of course, you count what Russia is doing to Europe right now and Europe is helping greatly in Europe is doing most of the work itself. It just goes to show that just like with OPEC, those countries that produce a lot of the gas that the world consumes, have a lot of power, geopolitical power that they can exert as a weapon against other countries.
1: So before coming on, I was listening to a little talk you, you gave on the, uh, the BAB chat, right. sanctions aren't working, energy transition episode 28. Yeah. So sanctions aren't working, or maybe they are if there's some weird intention in a bifurcation away from Russia. But the other threat I see is that you see the European Union kind of coming apart. You see NATO coming mm. apart. And, you know, if Germany gets into the winter with no heat. I, I mean, if they're the responsible thing for their government to do would be to work with Russia then to try to like, get that natural gas. I don't know if they're going to do it or not. And I, responsibles can be interpreted many ways and disagreed with in many ways. But could you just discuss how the sanctions aren't working?
0: Well, as, as we spoke yesterday on the Chat, which is officially called the energy transition, but okay. I call it Chat because <laughs> okay. of our initial saying sounds a bit funny. And we do have fun discussing this very serious issues. Well the thing is that if you look at Venezuela, if you look at Iran and if you look at Russia, the sanctions are not having the desired effect. And this is the you know ultimate requirement for a successful action. They are having the opposite effect in all of these countries. Russia is raking it in because of higher prices for the commodities it exports, even if it exports its oil at a discount. While Europe is suffering much, much more severe effects of these sanctions that it's approved and it passed and it's implemented, just now Europe is gobbling up all the Russian oil it can get its hands on ahead of the embargo. I don't really see this as very rational or even politically correct behavior because it's you know, if we're being straight and blunt, it's all about political correctness. The moral high ground is just smoke mirrors. But, you know, if you want to, to implement an embargo against the supplier of a commodity, I mean, ha- have the decency to stop buying this commodity from them because it kind of betrays the, the purpose and Russia will make even more money from the oil it sells to Europe. But there's a silver lining kind of, that, um, you know, because Europe cannot rely so much on commodities imported from Russia, it will have to learn to, you know, to find new alternatives. And I don't, I don't necessarily mean U.S. LNG because they're just swapping one dependency for another dependency and the U.S. might be a friend to Europe, to the European Union, but in geopolitics there are no friends. Everybody looks after their own interests. Except the European Union. But uh, now I, I read some interesting news today about fertilizers. Fertilizer plants across Europe are shutting down because of the price of gas. This is threatening global food supply because, like with LNG, Europe is importing fertilizers, pushing prices up, and making fertilizers a lot more expensive for developing nations in Asia and in Africa. Again, Asia and Africa will bear the brunt of European policies, and then they wonder why Asia and Africa are not on their side. But that's beside the point. I heard that some countries in Europe are now looking into using manure as an alternative to synthetic fertilizers, which is, if you think about really ecological, really green. And I think that's a good thing. The problem is it will take some time to, you know, to, to make it scalable.
1: Yeah. But yeah,
0: there are yeah. still linings, so they're, they're really, really small, but they're, they're a bit amusing, I have to say, because, you know, now we don't like animal farming because of methane emissions, but you would need renew to replace synthetic birds like this. It's a complicated situation for Europe right
1: now. Yeah, it's it's almost like if you wanted to create more crises and you wanted to create after Two and a half years of supply chain collapse from covid policies shut yeah. down, and you wanted to create this whole situation of just like, that
0: worked as well yeah, yeah
1: it it, it, it well, yeah that's a thing like human intention yeah. is is just muddled oftentimes, and I also. Could you talk a little bit about oil and gas from Russia? I guess oil going to Saudi Arabia and then Saudi Arabia is buying Russian oil and then selling it to Europe or selling their own oil to Europe. What what is going on with that? Is that a laundering process or is no t- no no yeah.
0: the the Saudis are importing refined products okay. from from Russia uh, and they're exporting crude the oil. Okay it's the uh, russia is also exporting a lot of oil a lot more oil than before to india and uh, there were media reports really outrageous media reports that the oil gets processed refined into fuels in india and then india exports these fuels to, to europe and the u.s the, the thing about oil is that the global economy runs on it that's the end of it you can't keep it in the ground because we're all dependent on it and uh, keeping it in the ground if it ever happens will take decades, if not centuries, if we're still around. And as previous have proven against Venezuela and against Iran, even though these two countries are a lot less important geopolitically than Russia, because they are not nuclear powers, even Venezuela and Iran managed to export some oil, granted a lot less than before. With Russia, this cannot happen because it was the largest single exporter of crude and fuels. You can't just stop this flow. It was something like five million barrels of oil daily. You you don't have enough production from other countries to replace this. Which again proves that sanctions are not the best solution to geopolitical and conflicts, and that also Europe really, again rushed into these sanctions, and now they're talking about more sanctions. In the meantime, Russia is doing pretty well with its oil and gas, you know, revenues, and it can obviously afford to reduce flows to Europe, while Europe cannot really afford to have reduced supply of gas.
1: Yeah. And Doenberg writes and talks a lot about how if you are doing sanctions, one way to respond to it is try to boost your own production of oil and gas. And the more you can boost that, the more the price can go down the world price. And then you're not actually not only sanctioning one group that's penalizing the Europeans. And but then and the Africans and South Americans and then at the same time you're providing a much higher price of fuel for the exports of Russia, which is just insane. Yes,
0: you're benefiting the enemy ultimately.
1: <laughs> it, it it's it's like the incompetence is just it's so baffling. It's like it 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 is yeah. it, it yeah. Anyway, so what another thing you write about in this essay though it, with energy scarcity is about how when we have these times of scarcity and these times of energy scarcity and energy poverty, it can lead to social unrest. And because the penalty of not having enough energy is always going to fall on those with the least falling on the working class. And uh, do you see, foresee just more instability coming about in Europe and elsewhere?
0: I do. Yes. Unless politicians find ways to, to, control the situation, and I don't see a weak way of doing that. The news I've been reading from Europe and from the UK are just horrible. I mean, in the UK, the energy price cap for households is being revised upwards and upwards pretty much every day. People in, in Britain, the poorest ones, were, of course, hit first. But they will not be the only ones. Even middle-income people are starting to suffer. In Germany, in France, more and more people are slipping into energy poverty. Uh, I saw today, uh, Javier Blas from Bloomberg uh, had posted um, a chart for uh, France day, next day, uh, gas price, uh, electricity prices, sorry. the prices were something like $600 per megawatt hour. When just three years ago, he said $100 per megawatt hour would have been considered really expensive. Uh, For now, most households are uh, sort of shielded by government politics, but this cannot go on forever. In Germany, they're going to pass on some of the additional price for gas to end consumers, which will be boosting their energy bills. And when people cannot pay their bills, they will eventually take to the streets if there is another, and uh, by the way, I hear that in Germany, the the government is starting to control the narrative saying that it will be far right extremists protesting, which is kind of clever because Germans are uh, I think I'm left with the impression that they're very compliant, very rule following people. And if you, if you're basically being told that if you go out to protest energy prices, you will be considered far right, a far right extremist. Maybe this will stop some, but it's bluntly put, it will be a matter of just how bad it gets. If I can't pay my electricity bill. I wouldn't care if I'm being considered a far right extremist. I will go to protest.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it, when you create these vacuums of, just these vacuums of leadership, you will get something to, that goes in there. There's that something that, like, if a government falls, you will have the military come in and try to create some type of structure.
0: Well, yeah, let's hope it won't get after that. But you will get more populist politicians because in fairness, I, I think the, the term a populist politician, a populist, is really a, really a stupid term because all politicians want to make the people happy. Yeah. Well, ostensibly. Yeah. So they're all populists, really. Yeah. But the question is who is actually doing something to to make their people, their voters happy or at least less unhappy than they would be
1: yeah. with another government. And there's also this disgusting narrative that's coming out, too, that's saying, well, you know, this is a great opportunity with this energy scarcity and austerity on the people that we can then really do this green transition. And it, which is, yeah. as we mentioned earlier, people are restarting coal plants and things like that. If that's really your biggest thing is carbon, it's it's not really moving there. But then on the other side, yeah, there there's going to be less energy the way it's going right now. And uh, some people are celebrating that. And they're usually the wealthier kind of people. Uh, yeah, because who... they
0: can afford to pay for their yeah electricity yeah, or buy a second battery for their solar rooftop system, things like that. Yeah. And I especially like this, that the restart of coal plants is only for a little while. Yeah, emissions are on the rise because demand for energy is rising, and you're restarting your coal plants or extending their lives. In other countries, in Europe, they're extending the lives of coal plants, delaying their retirement. But it's only for for a little while, you know, until we cope with that crisis. And now the Belgian prime minister is saying that it could go on for a decade. How's that for a little
1: while? Yeah. And and if you're Germany, I guess you could cut down your ancient Bavarian forests and mine lignite coal. Yeah, imagine coal. how
0: green is that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially right. after after the, the latest COP26 last November approved a declaration against deforestation. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, you need energy and it has to come from somewhere. If it can not come from the sun or the wind, because there's not enough of these uh installations of this capacity that it would have to come from coal and from wood yeah
1: so with the remaining time that we have left i just want to focus on something a little more optimistic and a little more future looking at what would be the right optimal energy mix and so you wrote an essay on your Substack on august 19th but could you give a little preview of what is the optimal energy mix
0: yeah i actually wanted to Sound out my readers because most of them are really knowledgeable in the energy field. And it seems that one sees the optimal energy mix differently in accordance to their own, you know, priorities. For example, someone who really believes that we need to transition away from fossil fuels sees the optimal energy mix as featuring wind, solar, nuclear, and some gas for backup. This was really interesting. You still need backup from fossil fuels. but you know, it's uh, worth noting that a lot of these people saw nuclear as big part of any future grid. For me, I'm not a specialist. Far from it. I, I think the key is self-sufficiency. Not every country can have any degree of it. I mean, look in Japan. It has no space for solar. It has space for offshore wind, but it's it's a densely populated country. That won't be enough. So Japan is a really huge, important of fossil fuels, so it would depend on the country, but I I do think that if you do have some resources, like Bulgaria, for example, has coal, quite a bit of it, and so we're not as green as France with its nuclear power plants, but we do have a steady supply of locally produced energy. Of course, it's not the cleanest energy. and. Coal, especially as highly polluting needs to be tightly regulated so emissions are minimized as much as possible. But I still think, even with emissions, that local is better when, when you have it, if you have it. If not, nuclear appears to be the consensus solution according to not just the readers of my sub- substandard, but people talking about energy on social networks and... And in news media, nuclear appears to be sort of, not a silver bullet, but the closest to it. It's low emission, it really is expensive, and of course there's the uh, whole radioactive problem that seems to be vital for Germany. But yeah, well, you can't have a, a perfect solution. Yeah. You can't rely a hundred percent on wind and solar. That's, that's plainly impossible. Hydro again, it's good, it's very good, it's excellent until a drought comes. And this year has seen a lot of droughts everywhere, even in Norway, which relies on hydropower for more than 80% of its generation, I think.
1: Yeah, and not everyone 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 has so many rivers, exactly, and and the places to put them. And in the US, many of the best places have already been cited, and then also for coal. They can put in the the scrubbers now, at least, as I understand it, that prevent any of some of the the mercury that has tended to go into the air and air pollution and the old air pollution before CO two was considered that was actually actual
0: pollution that is bad for health. Yeah. That kills people. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, you know, and, and some people say, well, CO2, we don't have enough of it actually because the plants <laughs> use it and we're actually yeah. at a lower CO2 level than we should be. But that's that's a different conversation. So where should people follow your work?
0: Uh, well, I write about energy on oil price daily and my sub stack, I really energy. I try to keep it regular there as well. So... These are my principal outfits. I'm also on Twitter, Irina the on Energy, again, where I'm being really irreverent. So, you know, if you are a delicate soul, maybe not a good idea to phone you then.
1: Well, Irina Slav, I really appreciate all the work you're doing in informing myself and others. And thank you for your time.
0: Thank you for having me.